0: Okay, it looks like it's time to get started. I've got it all set up. So this week we're looking at part two of William Seymour, a catalyst and leader of the Pentecostal movement in the U.S. And so, quick review here. Uh, Who was William J. Seymour? He was an African-American evangelist. He was a man of prayer. And he was truly filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he was born in extreme poverty. Uh, My understanding is when his mother died, all her belongings, everything she owned in the world, was worth 50 cents. So, we're talking extreme poverty. He was the son of emancipated slaves. Uh, His mother had worked on a plantation. And he taught himself to read the Bible, and he attended a freedman's school. He didn't have a formal education, but he was able to read and write extremely well. That didn't hinder him at all. And he, uh, for about 50 years, his contributions to the Pentecostal movement were almost forgotten. But. The Lord made sure He hasn't been He hasn't been forgotten. Uh, a researcher, I believe, with the Assemblies of God was the one that brought this information back to light. That hey guys, our whole movement, this guy was the catalyst for it, you know, um, and so he was the catalyst for the what became the Pentecostal movement. It was called at the time the Azusa Street Revival, and one of the things about his meetings besides the fact that he was, uh, it was Pentecostal was the fact there was absolutely no segregation and this was at the height of the Jim Crow laws and um, one of the references I was reading said so this was at the height of lynchings and he was holding meetings, it was uh, it was, uh, I'm trying to remember the nationalities represented there, there was Ch- uh, Chinese and some other Asian, Hispanic, Black, uh, Italian, and all kinds of denominations, and uh, and white people. So that's, that's who he was. That's who we're going to pick up with part two of his story today. If you guys recall, one of the people that worked with him in the early years was Charles Parham. And Parham was in Texas, and so when William attended Parham's Bible school, he had to sit out in the hall. He couldn't be in the classroom with the white students. And when Parham took him out preaching, he only allowed William to preach to black people and not white people. None of that bothered William. He was going to follow and do what the Lord wanted him to do. Well, he got invited out to California to an uh, African-American church, and he preached there. And they didn't like his doctrine, so they padlocked the door against him, <laughs> the church door. Apparently this was, uh, among the holiness churches, this seems to have been kind of a passive-aggressive way of dealing with things, <laughs> was Padlock the preacher out of the church. <laughs> but he ended up uh, staying at the home of a, a Christian couple and started holding prayer meetings there. And people were beginning to get the baptism in the Holy Spirit as described in the second book of Acts. He did not get that right away, but he was preaching it anyways because he believed it to be true. And before long, more and more people started attending those meetings in that house. And then they outgrew the house, and he would stand on the porch and preach. And it got to the point there were so many people crushing in towards the porch, the porch collapsed. And so they had to reinforce the porch, and then they decided to head out and find a place where they could hold meetings because it had outgrown. It had outgrown uh, the porch. (laughs) And so they found a meeting house. It was located in the industrial section of Los Angeles on Azusa Street. It cost them $50 a month. Now, it had been an African Episcopal Methodist church, and the only way you can tell from this picture it used to be a church is the Gothic window over the front door. Um, The roof had caught fire, uh, the peaked roof they had, and so they just replaced it with a flat roof, after that, church no longer needed the building. They, uh, the owners rented it out. The bottom floor had been turned into a storage unit and a stable. So you can imagine how that probably smelled. <laughs> the upper floor had been turned into apartments. And so that's where the Pentecostal movement was born. Now we have, and allow me to digress for just a second. The, a lot of Pentecostal preachers have a bad reputation, a lot of the big-name preachers. They have the expensive jets, they have the expensive homes, they have the expensive clothes. Guys, that movement was born in what had been used as a stable. Okay? They had pro- problems with flies in the initial meetings because <laughs> it had a dirt floor. The building was 40 foot by 60 foot. It became known as the apost- apo- <clears throat> let me get, I'll get this word out in a second. Apostolic faith mission, you can see it says apostolic faith on the side. It had a dirt floor, otherwise it was in sound condition, except the ceiling was just eight feet. So it was a very low ceiling. When they were preparing for services, they had a mix of different chairs with California redwood planks nailed on top of empty nail kegs to provide an altar and to provide extra seating. I'll bet you there were some little kids that ended up getting splinters (laughs) off those planks. The pulpit was two wooden crates covered by a cloth. They didn't have an elevated platform because there was no room. Uh, the second floor of the building, they turned into offices and living quarters for William and a large prayer room that was just filled with these redwood planks for, for people to pray. Their prayer room also handled the overflow crowd from the services and services began on April 14, 1906. Now, this is the primary leadership of the movement. You can see William here. I believe this is the lady. I can't see the picture clearly. One of these two is the lady that would become his wife. Uh, Under his leadership, there was no segregation. There was black, white, Native American, that's the one I forgot, Hispanic and Asian were all represented there. This flew in the face of accepted practice across America because this was at the height like I said, at the Jim Crow laws, um, what one of, the, one of the attendees said was that when they attended those services, it was like the blood of Jesus had washed away all lines of division and segregation. And so we had people worshiping together that were completely different nationalities, completely different ethnicities. When people heard how the Lord was moving at this small mission, they began to come from all over the U.S. and then from all over the world. Now, another neat thing about this is there was no rejection of women in leadership positions at Azusa Street. And this was about, I believe, 11 or 12 years before women even got the right to vote in the U.S. And uh, that was, again, another one of the uncommon aspects of Azusa Street. And it's noteworthy that when William, when this began to develop, William delegated authority to 12 overseers, ordained ministers, and commissioned missionaries. He wasn't intent on being in charge. He didn't want to be in charge. He knew they needed some kind of a, stru- a framework in place for things to run smoothly. So that's how he, he set it up. And probably most of the people in this picture are among those that he. Uh, ordained to the delegated authority to. So there was, and you can see in the picture, there's a mixture of black and white people. It's not all, it's not all white people and it's not all black people. Now, when the, uh, when it started, it got mocked in the press. So one of the things that set the Pentecostal movement apart from the other movements was tongues. Um, They would speak in tongues and If you look at this, this is uh, the Los Angeles Daily Times, April 18, 1906, six days after the meeting started. They were already front page news. Weird babble of tongues. New sect of fanatics is breaking loose. Wild scene last night at Azusa Street. Gurgle of wordless talk by a sister. That was their description of tongues. (laughs) This was not a complimentary article. However, it's neat how the Lord can use these things and turn them for good. People started coming out of curiosity. And they would get there, and they would be touched by the Lord. They would feel the Lord's presence in that place. So, later attacks from the press were heavily influenced by racism and fear-mongering. I saw one, uh, as I was researching this, one of the headlines, it said something about uh, white women falling into the arms of black men. And you know, it's they were just totally misrepresenting things and they were trying to make people afraid of these meetings, afraid of the racial component. And a lot of the attacks on it were aimed at race. However, like I said, people started visiting as out of curiosity, and the leadership of Azusa did not mind. And that's one of the things too I like about William, he wasn't there to judge why someone was coming to his meeting. He didn't care why you came to the meeting. What he cared about was that you were touched by the Lord while you were there. They didn't discourage curiosity seekers. They didn't discourage any of that. But it said the presence of the Lord was so strong there, somebody would come and they would be skeptical of what the Lord was doing. But when they got in there, they would feel the Lord so close that they knew it had to be of God. They might not understand what was going on. They might not agree with all of it, but they knew the Lord was in that place. And that reminds me of uh, an incident in in California that's not directly related to Azusa, but it was a woman that uh, attended church. And she said that when she went to church, she felt something there she hadn't felt since she was a little kid. And what it was was the presence of the Lord, and that woman eventually got saved. But they would come to mock, and a lot of them would leave touched by the Lord. They'd leave saved. They'd leave with bodily ailments healed. They would leave with um, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, as the Pentecostals believed in it. So there was a lot of neat things going on there. Now, this gentleman is Frank Bartleman. And he was kind of the—you might call him a Christian journalist of sorts— He did a detailed record of everything that went on at Azusa Street. He recorded the prophecies that went forth there. He recorded um, people's testimonies. He recorded healings that took place. He was an itinerant evangelist. And uh, that article that I just showed you on the previous slide, um, whoops, wrong direction, this article was published the day of that horrific, San Francisco earthquake of 1906, where so many people were killed. Well, Frank Bartleman saw that there was an opportunity here, okay? So he wrote a tract about the earthquake and reminding people that they needed to get right with God. and They needed to get saved and reminding people that the Lord does judge sin. And so... Um, This tract, even though at that time I don't think Bartleman was directly associated with Azusa, it caused people to head to that church where they heard prophecies were going out because they wanted to know what was happening. Was this the end of the world? You know, so um, Bartleman, Frank Bartleman, ended up recording the happenings at Azusa in great detail. And as new prophecies came out, they would be published. They would be published in tracts. And so these tracks, um, you guys remember the chick tracks? Have you guys ever seen those? Uh, Well, when I was a kid, the main tracks that churches were still using were chick tracks and they were like little miniature comic books. They were about that wide and about that tall. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, these tracks were a little bit different. They were usually, um, I think maybe two-sided pages. They were handed out for free and it was kind of like the equivalent to religious pop-up ads on your computer now. You'd be walking down the street and someone would hand you a track, kind of like a pop-up ad on your computer, you know. But that's what uh, these tracks played a big part in um, initially getting people to come to Azusa. Even though they didn't have the name Azusa on it, it wasn't associated with Azusa, but these people were afraid, and they knew where the Lord was moving, so that's where they hit it. okay? So, more than 1,000 people at a time tried to attend services in that 60-foot by 10—I believe it was—I can't remember the dimensions. That small building, okay, that was not a big building. Regular crowds of upwards of 1,500 people were not common. Uh, the core membership was about 60 to 80 people that were the main <laughs> the main members that kept it uh, kept it running but up to 1,500 people. That was for three years. That many people were coming. The building would be packed, spilling out onto the boardwalk and onto the dirt street surrounding the mission. A stenographer was attending. Her name was Clara Lum, and she helped record the messages that were being preached by William and others and recording testimonies and recording prophecies. And she decided to... uh, Suggest they put it together into a newsletter, which they call the apostolic faith This was the first one Pentecost has come Los Angeles being visited by a revival of Bible salvation and Pentecost as recorded in the book of Acts So its peak circulation was about 50,000 people and it went all over the United States and um, usually the first page would contain one of William's sermons because he was, again, he was the main one that was speaking at these meetings. And even though he would not have said he was in charge, it was obvious that he's the one that the Lord put in control of those meetings. So they had the newsletter going out, and things are really, really happening here. There were three services a day, every day, seven days a week held at 10 AM, noon, and 7 PM. This lasted for three years. He was at the helm, And those services would usually just run together so that it was like an all-day-long service. And his preaching style was very straightforward, very firmly based on biblical teachings. And contrary to the reputation of Pentecostals and some Pentecostal preachers, William was not given to excitement or excessive emotion during his sermons. And they said sometimes during those meetings there would be prolonged seasons of silence, and they'd look up, and William would be up there. I told you the the pulpit was two crates stacked up on top of each other. He would be sitting behind the pulpit with his head in the crate praying as the Lord was moving in that service. And his language was language familiar to the people. He used it well. Um, a lot of people said, "Well, he was a simple preacher." Well, I've read his—I've read some of his sermons. They weren't simple sermons. I think what they meant is he didn't try to impress people with big words and, um, you know, the Greek meaning is this or the Hebrew meaning is this. Not that that's not important, but that's not what his approach was. It was very, very straightforward. And they had not just different races, but different class levels in society that attended. You had very poor and you had the very wealthy. You had people with little to no education, and then you had uh, college graduates there. So it was a mix of everybody, and the Lord used him and his straightforward style of preaching to reach these people. Uh, During these services, people would be saved, they'd be born again, they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, they would speak in tongues, There were people that were set free from demonic possession. And there were all kinds of healings that took place there. And so it was just tremendous. It was truly a -a one-of-a-kind revival in the United States. And so, like I said, um, this lack of segregation was taking place during the height of the Jim Crow laws. Um... In addition, women were preaching there and given leadership positions before they were granted the right to vote. There were all kinds of denominations that were coming, too. Baptists, Quakers, Methodists, Holiness groups, Mennonites, and Presbyterians, just to name a few. All different kinds of people were there. Basically, what it was is it was people that were hungry for God. And they didn't care what the denomination of the person next to them was or what the color of the person next to them was. They were there to be touched by the Lord. They were there to have an experience with the Lord. Uh, during these meetings, there were no musical instruments used. Now, if you've ever been to a Pentecostal church, you know Pentecostals don't have anything against musical instruments. They come, <laughs> uh, they definitely like music. Um, I remember... Uh, one church I attended, we had a, um, we had a very talented drummer, and I, I, I promise you guys, I used to wonder if one of these days he was going to get so caught up in drumming, he was going to start banging his head on the drums like Animal from the Muppets, he was that caught up in it. So they, they didn't use musical instruments, but it's not because they were against it. I think it's pretty much they didn't have room for it in there, for one thing, with so many people. And, uh, but there were no musical instruments yet. They did sing, they sang a cappella, And sometimes the congregation would sing together in tongues and it would have a melody and it was beautiful, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, a song that pe- everybody knew, but they just all joined in on this. It was amazing. Um, like I said, there were often times of extended silence And I know in some churches, people get nervous when it gets quiet. But it reminds me of uh, Elijah's experience with the Lord. There was a, uh, as I recall correctly, it talked about a windstorm coming through, and it said the Lord was not in the windstorm, and then there was a still, small voice. And that still, small voice was the Lord. The Lord can speak to us in the noise and excitement of a windstorm so to speak, but he can also speak to us in silence. And there are times when it's just fine for us to just sit there and be quiet in the presence of the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. The Lord doesn't expect us to talk and sing the whole time we're with him and we're worshiping him. Now, another thing, they didn't openly advertise these meetings. There were no handbills or posters that were printed to advertise them. Now, I mentioned the tract Um, when that tract about the earthquake went out, it was not directly tied in with Azusa Street. So they weren't advertising these meetings, but they still had 1,500 people coming to these meetings. And it was not in a nice part of town, and still people were coming. And everybody agreed that when they would come, that the Holy Spirit was the one in charge, that it was the Lord moving in this place. The Lord was directing things. And so I think that's I think that's neat. I would love to have been in one of those services just to see what it was like, even if it meant I had to sit on a redwood plank with splinters. Okay. I still would have loved that. Can you imagine how how hot it could get in there, and everything? And in the first first uh, few weeks of it, them having trouble with flies because it had so recently been a stable. But that's that's where the Lord chose to move. It wasn't in a big, great cathedral. Now. Um, uh, probably about t- 15 or 20 years after this, Amy Simple McPherson is going to build Angela's temple in Los Angeles. She was indirectly touched by the um, Azusa Street movement. She never attended those meetings, but her husband was one of those that was directly influenced by them. But at this time, the Lord chose... It was like the Lord looked for the humblest place he could find... And the person that would probably be the greatest outcast from society to lead it. You know, you just have to love how the Lord does that, you know. And here, he used the son of uh, former slaves. The The very demographic that had been enslaved and treated as if they had no souls. And that's who the Lord used to raise up. A move of God that continues to be the largest growing denomination in the world. Pentecostal movement. So, now, of course these things are not going to go on without attacks. They were attacked in the press with ugly uh, newspaper articles, and then he got attacked by a very trusted friend. Uh, William's old teacher, William H. Parham, that was the one who had only allowed William to preach to blacks and segregated him during the classes. William invited him to come and preach at these meetings. Um, William Parham, I believe I misstated that. That should be Charles Parham. Uh, Parham had preached tongues. He believed in it differently from William. He believed that tongues were always a language known to people and that tongues were to be used in missions only. Um, That's not how it it turned out, but that's what um, Charles Parham believed. Well, because he had been such an influence on William, and he was the one that had introduced William to the doctrines involving tongues, William invited him to come. And so, Parham arrives, and he is outraged because there's no segregation at the meetings. He is outraged at seeing white people and black people sitting together in the church service and kneeling next to each other, t- the elbows touching and praying together. And he did not like how um, Parham had been... Uh, Parham did not like how William had been preaching about tongues. And he said, you know, he believed tongues was solely for missions, and here tongues was a, uh, a prayer language. They were praying in tongues. They were singing in tongues. Um, And he also didn't like the emotional excitement that took place. So he demanded, first of all, that William dismiss several of his aides. Well, William wasn't going to do that unless the Lord had led him to, and the Lord had not said anything to him about that. And so Charles Parham's presence resulted in the first split among the Azusa group. But he wasn't able to stop the desegregation. When he, tried to, when he tried to put a stop to that, it was like, uh, as my sister Donna would have said, like, water rolling off a duck's back. <laughs> it just didn't, didn't have any impact. Okay, so then he quietly, William very quietly dismissed Parham from participation at the mission. It may have involved the padlock, as I mentioned, their passive-aggressive approach to dealing with these things. And then William said, the only true leader of the mission is the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm not the leader. The, the people that authority have been delegated to are not the final leader. The leader is the Holy Spirit. And so Parham was highly offended at this, and he stayed in town just long enough to start a competing mission just blocks from Azusa. And he made an effort to have the press declare him the leader of the Pentecostal movement and not William. And that didn't work. His plans did not work. And his behavior ended up, ended up leading to the end of his own prominence in the Pentecostal movement. A lot of people lost respect for him for his behavior because what he did was wrong. If he didn't agree with what William was preaching and teaching, then he should have gone on and, with his own work. And in an interesting twist, you know, you see this and you think, my goodness, this is unchristian behavior. And, you know, when I deal with, um, when, I talk, when I've talked about people, missionaries and preachers, I always, I don't try to gloss over things that are negative. Uh, and an interesting side note, Parham was arrested the following year for committing an unnatural offense with a young man, which at that time was illegal. Now, the charges were dropped for lack of evidence, but this was the year following him trying to take Seymour down. Well, the Lord had decided that William Seymour would be his representative at those meetings. And when the Lord chooses who is going to represent him, people shouldn't start interfering with that, you know. Uh, And so Parham suffered repercussions for what he did. He didn't get by with his attack on William Seymour. So can you imagine how hurtful that must have been I imagine he considered Parham to be his mentor, and to be betrayed like that by your mentor, by someone you respected. He went to his Bible school, and to be betrayed like that had to be so heartbreaking, but William did not strike back. And that's something I've seen over and over as people attack him when the press attacked him. He didn't pay any attention to it. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to defend the work. He just kept doing what the Lord was leading him to do. And so when Parham betrayed him like this, he didn't attack Parham, and he didn't let it affect his relationship with God. He didn't let it cause him to lose faith in the Lord because this happened to him, but he just kept on. He just persisted in seeking God himself well he got married uh one among the first to receive the baptism under his ministry was a pretty pianist named Jean evans moore and people called her jenny and she was playing the piano at the meetings when it was at the uh the house when they were holding the meetings in that house the prayer meetings and she fell off the piano bench (laughs) the lord came on her so strong she fell off the piano bench Well, he married her in 1908 during the third year of the revival, and not everybody was happy with this marriage. Uh, And it seems that perhaps jealousy might have played a role in the split that followed, but there was a split that followed. Uh, When he married Jenny, and by the way, isn't she cute in that picture? She looks like a good match for him, and you can see, yeah, and you can see a sweetness in his face as he's looking at her. Well, the church secretary, uh, the lady that had taken down his, the stenographer that had taken down his sermons, she didn't like it that he married Jenny, and she left and took his mailing list with her. Um, The mailing list for the newsletter, The Apostolic Faith, it had a peak circulation of 50,000. She took all the names and addresses with her. There was not another copy and she headed to start a new work in Oregon with a woman named Florence Crawford. So first of all, she stole the mailing list. Then she and Florence Crawford used the same name, um, Apostolic Faith Mission, and started publishing the newsletter without telling people what they had done. And so people were under the assumption that William Seymour was no longer in charge of the apostolic faith mission and that it had moved to Oregon, which it had not. And so this crippled his outreach to over 50,000 readers. Um, He had no way to reach them and explain to them what had happened because he didn't have the mailing list anymore. And this was before the time of TV, uh, before the time of ministers having a radio ministry. His only means of reaching out to his supporters outside of California was that newsletter, and they had stolen it. And however, William did not strike back at Crawford for this. And by the way, that's a picture of Florence Crawford. Uh, he didn't strike back, but at this time, the movement was beginning to come to a close. Now, the, church, the people in the church were still there, but the revival itself was coming to a close after three years, which is not uncommon. Um, I don't remember the Welsh revival. I don't remember how long it lasted, but it had a limited amount of time that it lasted various revivals. They don't go on forever. They go on for a limited amount of time. Okay. Well, then he got attacked again. And this was another friend of his. This is William Durham. Uh, In 1911, uh, William Seymour asked William Durham, his friend, to come and fill in for him while he went on a revival tour. And so Durham agreed. Uh, He gets there, and he starts preaching doctrines that he knows that William Seymour doesn't agree with and doesn't preach. They were considered extremists. And William's wife, Jenny, was still there at the church, and so she padlocked Durham out. Seriously, we have another padlock instance here? She padlocked Durham out of the building and called for her husband to return immediately, most likely by telegram. Now, after she locked Durham out, he began to publicly state that William Seymour was not suitable to be the leader of Azusa Street anymore because he was no longer following God. William Durham died the following year suddenly. And so again we see someone that was directly trying to attack William's leadership here and they something bad happened to him. This instance someone died. And so again he was betrayed by a friend. And it had to be so heartbreaking and it's so sad when ministers and Christians get competitive. It's such an ugly thing and it shouldn't it shouldn't be such an ugly thing. But again, William didn't let this shake him. He didn't let this shake his faith in God. He continued and persevered. And that's one of the things that has really stood out to me as I've studied him. Now, I read about him years ago when I was a teenager, but I've got access on the internet to a lot of other information now. And one of the things that has stood out to me is his patient persistence when faced with racism, segregation and attacks. He didn't strike back. He didn't fight. He just followed the Lord. And what we see here is the Lord, what's the word I'm trying to find? I don't want to say glorified him, but in a way it's kind of like he did. The Lord uh, lifted him up above those that would push him away because of the color of his skin. The Lord used him even though he had been, uh, his family had been mistreated, he had been mistreated, the Lord blessed him immensely. He did not allow himself to be drawn into reprisals. Even when it was obvious that people had done him wrong, he didn't get in the middle of a, a reprisal. And I think that may be one of the reasons that revival lasted as long as it did, is that they didn't strike back when they were attacked. When the newspapers made fun of them, they just kept on having their meetings. They didn't bar the new, the journalists from coming or anything like that. They just, kept, they just kept following God. They didn't let all these distractions bother them. When a friend declared he wasn't fit to lead the revival, William replied, the Holy Spirit is leading this revival, not me. That humility that he had, it had he had to be a humble man for the Lord to use him for such a powerful and intense uh, ministry, what what all he was able to achieve. And um, behind his quiet facade of not striking back, of not fighting against people, of not trying to get a reprisal or something behind that quiet facade he had a will of iron that he was determined to follow God no matter what kind of obstacles were thrown in his path he was determined to attend Bible school even if they made him sit outside in the hall he was determined to preach even if the minister he was working with would only let him preach to black people he was determined to follow God even when people were telling him that he was not supposed to be the leader and all of that he was determined to follow God. That will of iron that he had, I think that's neat. That's a truly a powerful determination that he had and that the Lord used. Oops, I went too far. Let me go back in my slides here. So even after the Azusa Street revival came to a close, he and Jenny stayed on at the Apostolic Faith Mission on Azusa Street. Um, It became primarily an African-American congregation. He stayed there as the pastor, and then he would hold revivals across the country while he was still pastoring. And he passed away on September 28, 1922. He was only 52. Now that's awfully young. He passed away in his wife Jenny's arms and I think that's sweet and romantic. You know, I'm a sucker for that sweet romantic stuff in these stories, and I thought that was sweet. He passed away in her arms, and she continued to pastor that church until her death. So she took over after he passed. And so his his work drew to an end. Now let's talk about the impact of this. As I've already said, that revival marked the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in the U.S., just about every major Pentecostal denomination, Assemblies of God, Church of God, uh, um, Pentecostal holiness, they could trace their roots back to Azusa and his quiet, patient leadership. Thousands of missionaries resulted from this movement, lots of missionaries from its first days. Um, Amy Simple McPherson and her husband, uh, Robert Simple they headed out to the mission field, inspired by what was going on in the Pentecostal movement. Her husband was Pentecostal. So thousands of missionaries took the Pentecostal message all over the world, and it remains the fastest growing Christian group in the world to this day. And the Lord used a, a quiet, patient man with a will of iron. That's who the Lord picked to lead that movement. I think it's so neat, and I so admire how, how patient he was and how he just kept on following the Lord. And what, a, what an example for us, you know, that when things happen, disappointments happen, we are hurt by people, we're betrayed by people. We can follow William's example and just keep our eyes on Jesus and not let ourselves be pulled down by those things. So that's that's what I wanted to share. I'm finishing up a little bit uh, early today, but that's what I wanted to share. And I, I just love, I love, I love studying about this because I had read about it when I was a teenager. But like I said, they didn't. We didn't have the internet available like we do now. I don't want to say we didn't have the internet, but I didn't have the internet. Okay, and if I did, it wasn't that kind of stuff available on it. But to be able to see the different pieces come together, to see people that openly attacked him. Um, Of the three major instances of that, one of them died the year after, and one of them, his ministry, he lost respect. So, the Lord was with William. And, you know, that's the most important thing for us when the end of our life comes. Did we try to follow the Lord? That's what the Lord's looking for. It's a a missionary that we had talked about. uh, uh, Archibald Forder. Is who it was. I remember he had the funny first name, but he said that the Lord said it wasn't, uh, you know, the good and successful servant, but it was the good and faithful servant that the Lord was blessing and that the Lord was inviting to spend uh, eternity with him in heaven. It was the good and faithful, and we see with William a faithful man of God, a consistent man of God, and so that's a good good thing for us to remember the Lord's looking for us to be faithful not necessarily successful not necessarily anything great in the eyes of other people but he's looking for faithfulness and so if we could go ahead and close in prayer dear heavenly father we thank you so much Lord that you called William Seymour out of I believe it was Centerville, Louisiana and Lord you called him to preach and you put in him a will of iron to follow you no matter what. And you, Lord, you used his humility and his sweet spirit and used him to raise up an a, a influential movement of God. And we thank you, Lord, for that. And we thank you for the example that he left for us, that when we're hurt and when we're betrayed, to not let that take our eyes off of you, but, Lord, in all things to remain faithful to you. And I thank you, Lord, and I pray that you'll bless those that came here to listen today. I pray that they will leave feeling refreshed and we thank you Lord in your name. Amen.